May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. I encourage you to look in your worship order and there you will find our sermon text for this evening. Selections from Leviticus chapter 16. And we will get there in just a moment and read that. Last week we began a new series on the atonement. The atonement is notoriously difficult to define, yet easy to describe. And so in this series, we're going to try to do both. The foundational definition of atonement that we will be using throughout is the definition of atonement as covering. The atonement is a covering. To make atonement is to cover over something. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the shelter and the shield of God's people, that he is the true and better Passover lamb who takes away sins and turns away God's wrath. In other words, his blood covers our families. Under his precious blood, we find safety and security from God's holy wrath and judgment. But this week, we're going to focus on another facet of the atonement. Jesus as our sin offering and scapegoat. The word scapegoat, if you're curious, is a word that was actually coined by William Tyndale. He was a priest who first translated the Bible into English in the early 1500s. He used the word scapegoat in Leviticus 16 because he was trying to find a way to describe a ritual that happens on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And we're going to explore that today. And so while the term scapegoat has sort of fallen out of style, I wanted to retain it as a hat tip to William Tyndale, but also because I believe it captures something important about this story. But I do want to say that I understand that many modern people tend to misunderstand the biblical notion of scapegoat, and they misapply it to all sorts of situations. So while preparing for this sermon, I came across a book titled Scapegoat, A History of Blaming Other People. And I was actually able to read a few excerpts from the book. It had some really interesting stories. Some of them were very sad. Some of them were just very strange. And I won't take time now to go into those. But the thing that I noticed is that Scapegoat, according to the author of that book and the stories collected, was simply used as an unfortunate fall guy. Someone who gets set up unawares or against his will in order to take the blame or the rap for all the bad things that other people do. Another thing I noticed while exploring and researching for the sermon on Jesus as our scapegoat is that there was a meme circulating that says, Scapegoat, the secret of success is knowing who to blame. Well, I'm sure that's true in many circles, but that is not the way the word scapegoat was used in Scripture. It's certainly not the way William Tyndale expected us to understand it. As we're going to see today, Jesus is our scapegoat and our sin offering. But unlike these other scapegoats that you could read about in Charlie Campbell's book or in other places on the internet, the thing I want you to see is that Jesus came freely, he came humbly to do his Father's will. 
So as I said, scapegoat, I'm sorry, uh, atonement is much easier to describe than it is to define. And so let us hear what God's Word says about the atoning work of Christ, our sin offering and scapegoat. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Leviticus 16. Open your hearts and open your ears and listen to the words of God. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come into the holy place inside the veil whenever he wants before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take them, take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering and for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he is to sprinkle it He is to sprinkle it and make atonement. When he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land, and the man will release it there. And this is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. After the Passover and Exodus, the people were instructed to build a tabernacle and a dwelling place for the Lord. Biblical scholars have noticed that this actually poses a real problem. If the book of Exodus asks the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unclean people? The book of Leviticus is the book that provides the answer. And the answer is only by sacrifice and the shedding of blood. 
The text that we just read describes the Day of Atonement, or as you will notice on your calendar sometime around September, Yom Kippur. It is the holy day of the year, the most holy day of the year for Jewish people. Even on this day in our time, Jewish people still celebrate Yom Kippur only in spirit. They have no place to offer sacrifice. They have no place to bring offerings. And yet they still celebrate this because this is the day on which God has covenanted to assemble his people and deal with all of their sins all at once at one mint for the whole year. To say that a lot was riding on this day and the events of this day and the rituals of this day would be an understatement. But I want to try to help you understand our forefathers and their situation. I want to help you get into their sandals, so to speak. If nothing else, to help you understand the gravity of this situation. The scriptures tell us that the Day of Atonement was... A day of actual fasting and prayer. And I don't mean the soft evangelical Lenten fast from Facebook and from chocolate. I'm talking about real fasting where you didn't eat or drink for the entire day. It is described as an affliction of the soul where people were expected to confess and repent their sins. On this day, the entire community is holding its breath as it draws near to worship God. And as they draw near, they draw near with a sense of hopeful realism, knowing that their fate and their destiny were riding on the ministry of the high priest. If the high priest failed to discharge all the duties of his ministry, the whole community would suffer the consequences of that failure. And so his obedience of faith to the word of God is paramount as he walks before the face of God on behalf of the people. Now, it is likely that those of you who have been in and around Christian circles for years might have heard a story that goes something like this. It's a dramatic story about how on this day the high priest would put jingle bells on his garment and they would tie a rope around his ankle And he would move around inside the most holy place where no one could go. And so long as the bells were heard, people knew that he was alive and kicking and still conducting his ministry. But if the bells ever stopped jingling, they would think he must have died. And the rope was there to drag him out of the most holy place, past the curtain, out into safety where the people were. It's a very dramatic story. I've heard it many times and some preachers really work it up for you. And the problem is, there's no truth in it. It never happened. It turns out to be not a pastor story, not a preacher story that's made up, but one that the rabbis made up somewhere in the 13th century. But now you know, right? The only thing true about that story is that the story helps us understand something of the gravity of the situation. People understood that a lot was riding, everything was riding on the ministry of the high priest on that day. The Lord makes it clear at the outset that not just anyone and everyone is able to draw near to him, but only the high priest. And not even the high priest was able to draw near to God just any time and every time he felt like drawing near. 
He had to wait until God gave him a special invitation with special instructions. And when God called him to come into the temple, he was to come into, well, in this case, the tabernacle or the most holy place on God's terms in God's way. This is the kind of thing that rubs many Protestant evangelicals the wrong way. We don't like this kind of thing. Because we believe, we imagine that anything we feel like doing in worship and any way we feel like doing it in worship should be good enough for God because it's good enough for us. And so we draw near to God in this sort of willy-nilly fashion, thinking we can do what we want, when we want, the way we want. And yet we're reminded in this text that the high priest lost two sons who learned the hard way that God is holy and that drawing near to God in worship is a dangerous work. Over the years, I believe that our congregation has grown in the grace and knowledge of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You might say, you've come a long way, baby. But I want to take advantage of this moment and the advantage of what the text affords us to do to remind you that worship is not a casual make it up as you go, choose your own adventure, do whatever feels right to you, come as you are whenever you feel like it kind of thing. Our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, when we draw near to Him, we must draw near on His terms and at His times and in the way that He requires. And what that means is we draw near to God with reverence and awe so that our sacrifice and service may be acceptable in His sight. And we shouldn't take this for granted or take it lightly that the holy God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit invites us to come near to Him and draw near. Let's not be so lax about that and so casual about that, but let's make every effort to obey the Lord and draw near as often as He calls us. God requires His people to worship Him. But He doesn't simply require us to, figure, uh, to worship Him and then figure out what we want to do. His Word regulates our worship. He tells us what He wants, when He wants it, who He wants to be there, how He wants it done, and why He wants it done. It's all in His Word, as we see in this story. And so to get back to this story, consider what's happening here. This isn't just empty ritual. This is the high priest performing his duties as a minister on behalf of the people. So he is required to dress a specific way, to bring specific animals for specific sacrifices at specific times in specific ways. It's very detailed. The Day of Atonement was considered a Sabbath of solemn rest. This is a day on which no one better be doing anything other than coming and drawing near to God, fasting and praying. Why? Because this day is to remind Israel of God's holiness, but it's also to remind them of their sinfulness and their brokenness. And that includes their ministers. This is also a very bloody day in Israel. 
If you calculate all of the texts that talk about the Day of Atonement, you come up with at least 15 different animal sacrifices that are offered. That's a lot of blood. It's a lot of bloodshed, a lot of cutting. It's a lot of burning. And that doesn't include the scapegoat. And so what I want you to notice here, if you haven't picked up on this by now, is that there is nothing seeker-friendly, culturally relevant, personally customized about this worship service. God didn't put his finger to the wind and say, I wonder what Israel would like today. And he didn't say to Israel, hey, figure out what the nations around you would like and let's see if we can accommodate them. God doesn't move and he requires everyone to conform to his will if they're going to draw near to him. Now, to us, all of this might seem a bit superfluous or laborious. We might even consider it tedious. And maybe even some of us think, no, this is odious. I would never want to do this. But keep in mind that first and foremost, this is all about the glory of God. And it's also about the good of God's people. All those people who believed gathered for worship. And there they are, gathered in the presence of God. I wonder what it would have been like to live there. Like we might have said, we're going to show up on Yom Kippur because we know that on that day, God is going to cover us and cleanse us from our sins. And he is going to commune with us again. He's going to do this at least once for the whole year. Let's make sure we're there. If you knew that God would do that for you, wouldn't you want to gather in his presence for worship? If you knew that God was going to offer you some kind of sacrifice, some kind of sign and seal, a guarantee that He is going to cover you and cleanse you and commune with you, wouldn't that encourage you to make every effort to draw near to Him in worship? Well, I'm being facetious because this is exactly what the Lord promises us every Lord's Day. And he offers these promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to draw your attention to the two goats of the atonement. That's what I said at the outset. This is about seeing Jesus as our sin offering and seeing Jesus as our scapegoat. The high priest is to take two goats. A lot of, a lot of other things are happening on the Day of Atonement. We're just centering on this. He takes two goats, brings them before the Lord cast lots. Proverbs tell us that even the casting of the lots, even the decision of the lot is determined by the Lord. There's no chance or circumstance in any of this. So the Lord through the lots selects one or other of the goats. One of them is for the Lord. The other one is for Azazel. The first goat was sacrificed And his blood was shed in order to deal with the penalty of sin that God's people deserved. The wages of sin is death. So that goat was put to death and then turned into smoke on the altar in order to show God's people in a very graphic way how God deals with sin and what God thinks about sin and how he views sinners. This sin offering turned aside God's wrath from His people. The other goat was set apart in order to deal with the ongoing presence of sin among God's people. 
The work of sin in us is to decay us and to debilitate us. And so that goat was sent away bearing the sins of the people in order to perish in an uninhabitable place. A no man's land, a place where no man, woman, or child should dwell. And this was to show God's people how God deals with the effects of sin in their life. That he takes their sin and drives them far away. The scapegoat took away the people's sins. The first goat is burned up on the fire of the altar. The second goat is banished to no man's land. But in one of the more graphic details of the atonement ritual, we see that it involves no bloodshed whatsoever. The blood has been shed, the blood has been sprinkled, but now a very important ritual takes place. The high priest approaches the scapegoat. He stands before the scapegoat and he leans down and he places both hands on the head of the scapegoat. And in that posture, he begins to confess the sins of the people, the sins of the community. Now, I don't know how detailed that was. I don't know how generalized that confession was. But I imagine that it was fairly specific. Perhaps he's working his way through the Ten Commandments, thinking of how the people of God had broken those. Maybe he remembers some of his pastoral visits and the conversations he's had. Other priests have told him what the people have been up to. Maybe he's reflecting even on his own sins. The point is, he is confessing the sins. And you don't want to leave out any sins as if no sin is too small to be on the head of this goat. Or no sin is too big to be put on the head of this goat. Put it all here. And he's doing this as a representative. Not simply a representative of the people as he usually is. But now it's a representative of God for the people. Why would we say that? Because God alone and only God can take away sins. And what's happening in this moment is the sins of the people are being taken from the people, put into the hands of the priest and laid upon the head of this goat. And so as God's representative, only the high priest is authorized to take the sins from the people, put them on the scapegoat. And then he's authorized to send away this live goat, bearing the sins of the people. And he does this year after year. In this ritual, God is signifying to his people that his people may live and not die. He is signifying that all their sins will be dealt with at another time, in another place, by another sin bearer, by another scapegoat who will deal with their sins once and for all. Now, all these things happen in their proper order, in their proper time, and they happen only after the proper sacrifices were made and the prayers were offered and the blood was sprinkled in the right places. Only then could everyone finally breathe a sigh of relief and rest in the Lord on this Sabbath day. And all of that... All of that was just to make atonement for sins on that day for one year. 
After all was said and done, the atoning sacrifice of that day lasted one year. And the next year, they would go through it all again. They're being reminded that the blood of bulls and goats could only secure a temporary redemption. Could only secure a superficial, superficial, surface level sanctification. You couldn't penetrate to the heart and the soul and the depths of what the people needed. So at worst, this sacrificial system would cover the people for one day, one day at a time, they were okay. At best, it would cover them one year, one year at a time. We're good for another year. Granted, it was better than no covering at all, but it was not good enough. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something truer and better than the blood of bulls and goats was needed to cover the people and cleanse their sins, cancel their debts, and connect God back to them. But the pressing question day after day and year after year is who or what could ever accomplish such a feat? Who could ever cover all of the righteous requirements and the demands of God's law? And the answer is Jesus Christ. According to the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the substance of all of the shadows that you see in Leviticus 16. And you could go back through Leviticus 16 with your Jesus lenses on, and this is what you would see, is that Jesus Christ is the true and better high priest who sacrificed the sin offering for God, who tore the veil apart, who entered into the most holy place and sprinkled His blood on the mercy seat and covered all the demands of the law with His blood. You could go back through Leviticus 16 and see that Jesus is the true and better goat who was sacrificed on the cross for the Lord as a sin offering to take the place of His people in judgment and to turn aside God's wrath from them. You would also see that Jesus is the true and better scapegoat who humbly, willingly, and obediently took upon Himself all our sins, who was cut off outside the city gates, who carried our sins far away from us, as far away as the east is from the west. In making atonement for us, Jesus did at least three things. One is... He made propitiation for us, which means that He satisfies God. This is the vertical beam of the cross, if you will. He satisfies the demands of God and turns aside God's wrath from us. The other thing He accomplished is expiation, which is the horizontal beam of the cross, if you will, reminding us that He has taken our sins away from us. And in this act of making atonement, propitiation, expiation, He accomplishes reconciliation. 
He brings God and man together. And it's not just that we are reconciled to God and brought near to God, as good as that would be. No, the gospel is even better than that. For in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His atonement, He brought God to man. And this is grace, not works. For God came near to us through Jesus. And that is how and why He is able to call us to Himself through Jesus. So Jesus is our sin offering and our scapegoat. He became sin that we might become saints. He was condemned that we might be declared right. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was driven away from God that we might be drawn near to God. As the Spirit says in the book of Hebrews, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In this brief explanation of the ministry of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, we see two things. That Jesus destroyed death through His death. And He did this on the cross as the goat offered for sin once for all. And we also see that He delivered His people from the devil's terrorism as the scapegoat who took away all our sins, never to bring them back again. The Spirit goes on to say in Hebrews that Jesus had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so in all these things, we are to learn that Jesus is able to sympathize with us and deal gently with those of us who are wayward and weary. Because He knows by personal experience what it is we are going through. And He is willing and able to help us in our time of need. But the question remains, how does Jesus, our sin offering and our scapegoat, make atonement for our sins? Well, the Spirit explains to us in the book of Hebrews that when Christ appeared in the flesh as a high priest of the good things that have come, He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing, acquiring, procuring an eternal redemption. You see that only the blood of Jesus is able to acquire and secure an eternal redemption, a holistic sanctification from the inside out, and a permanent inheritance for the people of God. That is, for all sinners, all sinners anywhere and everywhere who turn from their sin and trust Christ to save them. His atoning work graciously covers the full price of our redemption. His atoning work cleanses us from our sins inside and out. And cancels all of our debts and all of our charges. His atoning work condemns our enemies, sin, flesh, the devil. And He casts them all away and He cuts them off. 
And He clothes us in His righteousness. His atoning work crushes the serpent and connects God with us and connects us with God. Jesus is our scapegoat. But He was not set up unawares. He was not set up against His will, nor waylaid by surprise, nor victimized by an angry mob in order to take the blame for all the bad things that other people do. No, Jesus Christ came willingly and obediently to do His Father's will, to accomplish this redemptive work that the Father had arranged. And He came to make atonement for all the people His Father had chosen and sent Him to redeem. The Spirit says in the book of Hebrews that after Christ had accomplished His mission and offered the once for all time sacrifice for sins, He ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And what is He doing? Well, now He is waiting for all of His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. And just as He came and was offered up once to bear the sins of many, so He will appear a second time not to deal with our sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Jesus is our scapegoat. And I have good news for you. The secret of salvation is knowing who to believe and who to bless, not who to blame.